Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Good morning, good brothers and sisters. We continue our journey through the book of Ruth this morning, chapter 2. I'll be reading from the New International Version. Now, Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, Go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered a field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem, and he greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of the harvesters, Who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, Why, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, My daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field, and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting, and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you, and whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground, and she asked him, Why? Why have you, I found such favor in your eyes that you, you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wing you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here. Have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. 
She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. <clears throat> Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she, then she threshed the barley she had gathered and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. Her mother-in-law asked, where did you glean today? Where, where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvests were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. The word of the Lord. Thank you for that dramatic reading, Ron. Good morning, Grantham Church. Glad to see all of you in worship. It's good to be back from vacation. We are in this second message of a four-part series on Ruth, the gospel according to Ruth. Uh, if you've not already done so, would you open up your Bibles or you can open that up on your smartphone if you have that and turn to the book of Ruth. That's the first part of the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, and the little book of Ruth. In your bulletin, you'll see that there's a, a series summary. It says this, the book of Ruth is a short story with a big message about how God cares for those who feel overlooked and how he's at work in the day-to-day -day activities of ordinary people. It's a book that pushes socio-cultural and familial boundaries. It's a hopeful and grace-filled story about moving from rules to relationship, from law to love. The book of Ruth is an invitation to see how our lives are a part of God's bigger plan as he's weaving a story of redemption out of all the details. You'll see that and more as we make our way through the book of Ruth. Last Sunday, Pastor Melissa began this series with an introduction to Ruth by covering chapter one. I'm just gonna give a quick review and a bit more background and context to the book of Ruth. <clears throat> Excuse me, notice the opening of the book says, in those days when the judges ruled. <clears throat> now what is this referring to? The book of Judges records a dark era in the history of Israel, somewhere around 14 to 1200 BC, which was the time after the Israelites entered the promised land and before the monarchy of Israel. It was a time of lawlessness, of violence, and of God's covenant people living with a broken 
moral compass. For they had become just like their pagan neighbors. The very last verse of the book of Judges says it all. It says, in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. And remember, this is the time of Naomi, of Ruth, and Boaz, the three primary characters here in the book of Ruth. The period of the Judges is about God's people breaking covenant and leaving Torah, that is God's law, and however, we'll see that the book of Ruth is about keeping covenant and living Torah. And where Judges documents many acts of violence and expressions of self-interest, Ruth documents great acts of love and self-sacrifice. It's clear that the book of Ruth is meant to depict the stark contrast between the godlessness of the majority with the faithfulness of the few, a remnant within Israel. And a reminder, listen to this, that no matter how dark things may be, looking closely and closer, you will find those who are carrying the light within as they walk publicly with a deep abiding trust in God and his purposes. At the end of chapter one, we read about Naomi wanting to leave Moab and return to her home in Bethlehem. Here's a, a map of that area, so you can find Moab there in red. Remember in chapter one, the story began by telling us that Naomi and her family, a husband and two sons, had left the land of Judah during a famine and went down to live in Moab on the other side of the Dead Sea. Now, you know things are bad when you flee to Moab. <laughs> you see, the, the Moabites were despised by the Israelites as they began from the incestual offspring of Lot. You remember the story of Abraham and his nephew Lot, and they were worshipers there, <coughs> false gods. But Naomi and her family, they go as refugees to try and make a life for themselves during this famine. And about 10 years later, we learn that Naomi's husband dies and leaves her with two grown sons and their Moabite wives. Just think about the hardships and the challenges that Naomi and her family have endured up to this point. I'm guessing that Naomi never envisioned she would live in a foreign land, <laughs> right? She, she never thought she would become a widow, yet it's happened. She never thought that her two sons would marry Moabite women, hmm. who apparently were never able to have children. I mean, after 10 years, they are childless. Think about that. All of that undoubtedly would have felt like a judgment from God to Naomi. And if losing her husband wasn't hard enough, both her sons die shortly after that. And now she's a grieving widow, suffering the nightmarish pain of losing her children. And so I think it would be right to see Naomi as a female Job. Think about that. So what happens next? Well, Naomi decides to return to her home, probably to die. She doesn't have much prospects there. She's older in age, probably not going to remarry. Uh, as she sets off with her Moabite daughters-in-law, she has the mind to put their interests before her own. And this is really phenomenal. And, and first, did you notice, she doesn't tell them that before they leave. She tells them on the way. Maybe she thought that would be easier. Maybe she got to thinking about it as she moved her thoughts away from herself and onto her daughter-in-laws. What kind of life would they 
lead there in Judah, being Moabite women with no husbands. And again, we're living in a very patriarchal society where men were there to take care of women and there were no, no uh, men in the situation and they're kind of left on their own. For they would certainly encounter greater hardships in the land of Judah than they would among their own people in Moab. So both are saddened by this request of Naomi. And uh, Orpah stays in Moab. But Ruth says this to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. When you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Listen, Ruth is saying, I'm not leaving your side. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, you need to notice here this covenantal language. Ruth is using covenantal language with her mother-in-law. Ruth is not only showing her love and loyalty for Naomi, not wanting to leave her alone, but she also reveals a desire to serve the one true God of Israel, not the gods from back home. As we'll see, Ruth's actions, they don't go unnoticed. And again, like Job and his friends, remember that story, Naomi appears to see her loss to be a judgment or curse from God. And that's the way they, they thought back then. And some of us, if we were honest, still think that way today. Something bad is happening to us. We think God must not be happy with us. But as the story will show, God is only interested in rewarding her faithfulness and restoring the family despite the death and the suffering that has occurred. Now, you have to remember that, I think, about the Old Testament. Right? In the Old Testament, they had a very limited view of God. And so this is why we call it progressive revelation that The God who's now been revealed in Jesus is the one true God. It's what God is like. It's what God has always been like. But we've not always known this, but praise God, we know it now. And so back then, they're trying to learn this lesson that there's only one God in the universe, and therefore, all of the bad stuff gets attributed to God as well as the good. It's important to remember that. It's very, very telling. And so that's what we need to remember about this story. It's not so much about these characters, like the details that Jesus would include in a parable. Don't miss the point. It's certainly not a romance novella, as some evangelicals would have us believe about this book, nor is it about approving of the patriarchal society that we see within this cultural backdrop of Ruth, but it's rather about who God is revealed to be in the context and why we can put our faith in this God. And so that's what I invite us to do in this series. So last Sunday, we saw how God cares for us in our suffering, and thankfully, he uses people, you and me, to do that, to embody his presence. And so this morning, we're going to see how God provides and protects his people, especially the humble, the needy, and the vulnerable. And we'll also see how God honors and exalts those who embody his loving kindness. Before we go any further, would you pray with me? Let's pray together and just open our hearts up to God. Father, we recognize that we're dealing with holy things here. We want to hear the truth of your word. And ultimately, Lord, we want to be set free from the poor portraits that we have of you. 
Set us free, Lord, that we might follow you in faith, that we might live God-centered lives and know your goodness and grace. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So earlier we heard Ron read Ruth chapter 2 for us. And we read that Naomi and Ruth arrive at Bethlehem and they need to eat, right? They need food. Just so happens to be the beginning of the barley harvest and the famine in the house of bread. Isn't that ironic? The house of Bethlehem, the house of bread, that famine is over. So the chapter begins with Naomi and Ruth discussing how and what they are going to eat. And Ruth goes out to look for food and decides to pick some grain that just so happens, are you following that? That just so happens to be the field which belongs to a relative of Naomi's husband. His name is Boaz. I think it's important to point out the reason why Ruth went to a field of grain to begin with. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, remember this is the second law. That's what Deuteronomy means. This is the the law that's given in the time of Joshua before they go in, this new generation goes into the promised land after the Exodus. And so listen to what Deuteronomy 24, 19 commands the Israelites to do. When you are harvesting in your field, and you overlook a sheaf that is a bundle of grain, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. Notice that this kind of practice is contingent. The blessings of God are contingent upon this practice, upon doing this. Thinking of the foreigner, thinking of the fatherless, thinking of the widow, thinking of the most vulnerable in society, even those who do not belong to your group. So this was called gleaning the fields. It was a way for widows, orphans, and sojourners to have what remained in the field, but they also retained their dignity, notice this, by having to do some work themselves. Hmm. So the reapers would intentionally neglect some of the produce often on the edges of their fields for this purpose. Uh, If you've been watching the series, The Chosen, there is a scene, I can't remember if it's season one or two, where Jesus is traveling with his disciples. You remember, he starts to pick the grain with his disciples as they are walking. Where is that? On the edges of the field, because they're living like nomads at the time. Now, that was very scandalous, not because, I mean, the law allowed for this, but Jesus (laughs) did it win (laughs) on the Sabbath working on the Sabbath. Well, while the law protected the widows, think about this. First off, this is unlike their pagan neighbors. Their pagan neighbors wouldn't do this. They wouldn't leave unharvested crops as an offering uh, for foreigners. They would leave it for their deities. Their gods needed to eat. (laughs) But notice the God of the universe, the only true and living God said, leave it for the foreigners. Leave it for the fatherless. Leave it for the widows and those in need. The law required that God's people do this out of love for those who had nothing for the sake of justice. And so while the law protected the widows who lived in the land, it also prohibited Moabites like Ruth from entering the community of Israel. You can just go back and look at Deuteronomy 23 verse 3 to see this. So unless someone was gracious and merciful enough to set aside this prohibition, you see, not seeing the letter of the law, but rather the spirit of it, this God of hesed, remember this Hebrew word, God of hesed, of loving kindness, 
then those who strive to keep the law would be deterred from lending a helping hand. Of course, the prophets and Jesus himself will challenge this and take it a bit further and show us what God really wants. But here we see that Boaz is a man of noble character that is in tune with God. He is not your typical lawless, merciless Israelite of the day. He's not, he's not lawless, he's not merciless, he's not ruthless, no pun intended there. He's different. There's some light here in the darkness. If we look close enough, we can see it even today. Boaz notices Ruth in this field. She's not a hired hand, that's obvious to Boaz. She's possibly dressed in mourner's attire, having lost her husband. Uh, in grieving there and mourning with Naomi and identifying herself with the fatherless and the widows, the most vulnerable, we said, as he approaches her. After learning more about her story, his heart goes out to Ruth and her old widowed mother-in-law. And in doing so, Boaz is keeping to the Torah and showing generosity and God's loving kindness to the immigrant Ruth. And in doing that, she was a Moabite, right, a despised ancient rival of Judah, he's also risking his own reputation. And we might be tempted in like some romance novel to think Boaz is, is thinking about something more than simply helping her. He's not. He's not. He's thinking about her loyalty and her love, not only for Naomi, but the love that she is showing to Yahweh. And it appears that one of the primary motivations for this, as said, is because he is so impressed. He's impressed. She would leave her own land, she would leave her gods, risk being ridiculed, assaulted, exploited, and even killed in Judah at the time of the judges. And seeing that, Boaz prays that God would bless her and reward her love and faith. He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Get that image, under his wings. We read that Boaz orders that none of his workers mistreat Ruth. You don't mistreat her. You help her. At the end of this chapter, Ruth goes home and tells Naomi that she had met Boaz, the kind and generous landowner who showed her great compassion. And wouldn't you know it, Naomi, overflowing with surprise and joy, tells Ruth that Boaz is a relative. Just so happens to be a relative. Are you seeing this? God is at work orchestrating this scene but not just any relative Boaz is. No, Boaz was what was called a kinsman. We heard uh, Ron read a, a guardian redeemer, a family redeemer. What is that? Well, in this culture, it meant that if a man died and left a wife, a family, and land, then it was the family redeemer's responsibility to marry the wife, protect the family, and to work the land. You see what God has worked out in this situation, there are no coincidences with God. Just imagine what this grieving and teetering on the edge of despair widow would have felt in that moment. I mean, like hope must have shot through Naomi like a bolt of lightning. Hmm. Out of the darkness comes this light within her heart. 
God was making a way when there seemed to be no way. God was pouring out his mercy and his grace and his loving kindness. God was providing for them. God was protecting them, just as Boaz recognized himself as a faithful Israelite. God was with them. This was no coincidence. And the psalmist would later write as a praise to God in whom we take refuge. Hear these words. Make them our own. How priceless is your unfailing love, O God, the psalmist says. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. You know, Jesus used that metaphor. You remember when he was riding, about to ride into Jerusalem, overlooking the city that final week. Just before he enters in, he cries out on behalf of Jerusalem and says, Oh, how I long to gather you together as a mother hen gathers her chicks but you wouldn't have it. This, this is a common metaphor in the Old Testament here for God's loving kindness and God's loving care, a maternal kind of love. You know, we need to see God rightly, don't we? He's a God who wants to provide and protect. He's a God who wants to give us what we need. But we tend to worry about things, don't we? <laughs> We worry like we're the ones who must pull it off, pull it off ourselves. We got to do it ourselves. Uh, we got to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But what happens when you don't have any boots? You see, this is why Jesus spoke to this on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter six. You remember this passage? I won't read all of it. You can read that. The reference is there in your bulletin. But he begins by saying, "Therefore, do not worry about your life." And he goes on and starts to list some different things that people would worry about. And the end of all of that, right, he says you can trust God. You can trust God. And here's what you need to do. You need to seek the kingdom and his righteousness first. And all these things that you are concerned about, God will take care of. This is how Jesus calls us to live. I like how Eugene Peterson translated this passage from the message. He said this, in this contemporary uh, version. He says, people who don't know God and the way he works fuss over these things, these basic needs of life. But you know both God and how he works. Steep your life in God reality, God initiative, God provisions. Don't worry about missing out. You'll find all your everyday human concerns will be met. Give your entire intention to what God is doing right now now. And don't get worked up about what may or may not happen tomorrow. God will help you deal with whatever hard things come when the time comes. And this is the life of faith that Jesus is calling us to live. You know, hearing these words of Jesus should remind us of how God is like a loving parent. And I know not all of us had loving parents. I really am sorry for that. I know that's hard. But if you can imagine it, imagine loving parents. Or if you could think about your own love for your children or maybe for someone else close to you, you can, I think, begin to understand what it must be like for God to want the best for us. The God who looks like Jesus does not kill our loved ones in Moab. He does not inflict pain. He does not send the storm. He calms the storm. 
You see, this is where we have to stop and ask ourselves, are we getting our portrait of God from Jesus or not? No, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift like a good, loving parent would. We mustn't believe that old lie of the serpent who still tempts us to imagine God as anything but good. It's an old lie. Apparently, it still works on a lot of us. God is calling us to resist it, reject it, to embrace the truth that he is the God who cares for Naomi and Ruth and you. My friends, there are so many influences, and and I know you know this, competing portraits of God that often keep us from seeing the God who looks like Jesus, but we must be intentional in resisting the false gods and see the God of the gospel and the gospel according to Ruth, even within this Old Testament book, because there are certainly some life-giving gospel truths that we can learn about God from Ruth chapter 2. In fact, here are some key themes. If you're taking notes, you might jot this down or just pull out your smartphone. You can take a picture. It's okay. We learn here that God is present and active when his people take the initiative and seek the good of others. Naomi wasn't thinking about herself. Boaz wasn't just thinking about himself. God is present and active when we take the initiative and seek the good of others. God also, we see here, orchestrates events in our lives. Now think about an orchestra. You think about someone who directs the, like the conductor directing the orchestra. God is like that with your life. And you don't have to believe, you know, uh, that God is like the Wizard of Oz pulling all the switches like that. No, you have freedom. You have free will. He wants you to make good decisions. But what does the Scripture say? Right? God works all things together for good for those who what? Love him and are called according to his purpose. Even the evil and the suffering and the things that happen in this world that are not of God, God can use those things to bless you and to bring him glory. Will you trust in that, that God is orchestrating events in your life to meet needs, reveal his loving kindness? Also, we see here that God provides and protects his people especially those who are humble, especially those who are needy and vulnerable. Do you see your need? That's how Jesus started the Beatitudes. You remember that? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who see their own spiritual poverty. That ought to make us humble. That ought to make us vulnerable. All of us who call ourselves disciples. And lastly, we see here this key theme, that God blesses those who bless others. Right? You heard that, that old proverb, that old American proverb. Actually, I think it goes back to ancient Greece, that God helps those who help themselves. Folks, that's not a biblical truth. The biblical truth is that God blesses those who bless others. And that is so freeing if we'll accept it. So what does this look like today? Maybe you can think of some examples of these key themes at work, maybe in your life or the lives and ministry of those around you. Well, I I saw an example of how God works in this way just this past week. Pastor Melissa made mention of it in the prayers of the people. I know some of you may have already seen this. 
the work of our homegrown ministry partner, 180 Ministries, was on the news. Uh, you can just Google this and watch the video. I won't show it to you this morning, but it's at fox43.com. If you're new to Grantham, 180 Ministries is one of our ministry partners birthed right here in Grantham Church with Julia and Dwayne Johnson. Julia, just wave your hand there. I remember sitting down with Julia in 2021. I came in 2016, so I've known Julia for a little while. But in 2021, and she just was really looking for a way to, to serve and to use her gifts. She had a passion for ministry. And she was thinking internally in the church. Now, look, there, there is space for you if you're feeling called to vocational ministry. It's not an easy job, <laughs> but there's space for that. And if God is moving your life, great. I'd love to talk with you. But for most of us, Right, that role is out in the world. And I, and I remember having this conversation with Julia and said, I think you're thinking too small or something to that effect. Julia, you, you belong out there in the community blessing others. And it was shortly after that, I know Julia uh, talked with Dwayne, who'd already pitched this idea sometime before that of forming 180, and they committed to doing it with God's strength and help. Their website says this, listen to this. Listen to how they're blessing others. At 180 Ministries, we understand the value of creating safe space to share life and foster meaningful relationships. Our fellowship gatherings provide the space and the opportunity. With a focus on the overall well-being of our community, we offer support by assisting with everyday necessities. I just get a picture of the fringes of the field, leaving grain. <laughs> hoping to relieve some of the financial stress carried by individuals and their families. We exemplify hope and acceptance to the love of Christ as we love our neighbors as ourselves, creating a bridge between our community and the local church. Isn't that wonderful? And, and, and I, as I've watched, I've seen God pour out his blessings on 180 ministries. From Julian Duane's car to the closet in our building, to the building on Market Street in downtown Mechanicsburg. As I've watched this, I've watched it with great joy and amazement, and every time, every time I take notice, like I did when I watched that video, Julia, I am reminded that God blesses those who are concerned about blessing others. You see, brothers and sisters, when you decide that you want to live in the center of God's will, to live by faith, to seek the kingdom first, to make him famous. See, I don't have to worry about Julie getting a big head because she, she knows that she's here by the grace of God and she's just a conduit for the spirit to do the work of the gospel where she is, right? When you decide to trust in God's ability to provide and protect, to humble yourself so that you can be a blessing to the lost, the hurting, and the vulnerable, and whatever sphere of influence that you live and that you work, God will pour out his blessings on your life and bless the things that you touch because you have placed yourself, look at this, within the great river of God's loving kindness. It really is a call to jump into the river of God, that river that's strong and flowing of God's loving kindness to get with the divine program of what God cares about and what God wants to do in the world. Jump Brothers and sisters, jump headfirst into the river of God's loving kindness so that you can be a blessing to others. I think this, that's one of the main takeaways in the book of Ruth. And I think that's the invitation for us 
this morning. So here are a few questions for reflection to help us to respond to the Spirit. And I trust the Spirit has already been speaking to you. Number one, how has God been at work in the details of your own story? Right, we heard that several times in the story so far. It just so happened, right? And then it happened, and then it happened. These aren't coincidences. Where do you see that in your own life? As you look back over the events in your own journey, how do you see God orchestrating things? Are you, are you looking, are you trying to see how God has been at work? I encourage you to do that. Number two, are you living a God-centered life? Does the kingdom come first? Or is it money? Or is it what I think I need to be happy? Or is, is it success or fame or power, whatever it might be? I'd encourage you, if it's not the kingdom, to put the kingdom first. And in doing that, jump into this river of God's loving kindness. And then number three, what adjustments might you need to make in order to receive God's provision and protection? You know, as disciples of Jesus, we're always on the journey needing to make course corrections. We live in the light that we have, and we seek to be faithful to God in that. And then as we journey with him, he gives us a little bit more light, shows us some new things, and calls us into deeper discipleship. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe God is trying to say something new to you. Maybe God wants you to take a bigger step of faith in putting the kingdom first. Or maybe God just wants you to know this morning that he is for you and not against you. Brothers and sisters, step into the river of God's loving kindness. You will not drown. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, Lord, for this story. And it's not over yet. How we're already seeing the gospel at work in this Old Testament book of Ruth. Lord, we can see Jesus within the pages. We, we can see what you're doing to provide and to protect your children and invite the foreigner, the alien, the refugee, the needy and the vulnerable into those blessings as well. Lord, help us, Lord, to care about the things that you care about. Help us to bless others the way Jesus has called us to. That we can step into that river of loving kindness. Remind us of your goodness this morning, Lord, as we sing together. In God's name we pray.